This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, July 15th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, Delta variant causes uptick in COVID cases across Colorado. Telluride Foundation pushes forward with housing initiative. County talks COVID recovery and a mountain weather forecast. But first, on Wednesday, longtime Norwood local Jack Hills was found dead in his home. Hills lived a proud, solitary life with his pets and had not been seen for many days. He is survived by his nephews Steve and Todd, his nieces Sherry, Tammy, Jackie, Cindy, and Terry, and his sister Caroline. He was 85 years old. The cause and manner of death are under investigation. Crippen Funeral Home will attend transfers. On Thursday, Black Bear Pass closed due to a single-vehicle accident just past Ingram Falls. The pass closed to vehicle traffic from both the bottom of Bridalvale Road in Telluride and the San Juan County side as a tow truck got to the scene. According to the San Miguel County Sheriff's Office, the driver and occupants reported no injuries. Colorado has seen an uptick in COVID cases in recent weeks due to the Delta variant. That's according to San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin. But our hospitalizations still have been very stable. So that really does show um, so far um, implied benefit from the vaccines. Franklin says currently 80% of positive COVID cases in Colorado are the Delta variant. And we know that it is more contagious, which means if one person's sick, it spreads more readily among other folks. Um, And we've been seeing with um, the removal of many mask policies um, and just general relaxation that more people are coming into places when they might be sick or symptomatic um, and people aren't um, having all these different layers of protection. She adds the more the Delta variant appears in the community, the harder vaccines will need to work to keep individuals safe. If the virus is still circulating, whether in our younger population, unvaccinated groups or globally, this just allows it more opportunity to mutate and um, change form into uh, ways that it is more severe or can negatively affect all these different groups um, in a, in a much more um, uh, concerning way. With that said, Franklin notes the coronavirus vaccine is still highly effective for keeping people healthy. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have a roughly 88% efficacy, including against the Delta variant. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine currently has an efficacy rate in the low 70s. I just want to caveat that both of those numbers are, are really good. They're still really effective. They do the job, and that's specific to getting infected, right? But for people to have severe outcomes from the virus if they're vaccinated, it's maintained at the same level of efficacy as we've seen in the labs and during clinical trials. When it comes to local cases, Franklin adds there has been a shift in where the virus is popping up. For the first year of the pandemic, the majority of cases were on the east end of the county. Now the west end is the hub for positive cases. Part of this uh, is really just little clusters of people that are unvaccinated where it's really moving through quickly. And so it being such a small population that every case really does make a huge impact on our numbers. Um, I would say too that the virus isn't gone here because we have seen through our wastewater treatment on the east end that there is still a prevalence of the virus, although low. Um, it does fluctuate um, throughout the week um, and that shows that uh, people are carrying the virus in the side of the town. Currently, there are five confirmed active COVID cases in San Miguel County.
The challenge when it comes to workforce housing is building homes that are affordable. The Telluride Foundation is trying to tackle that challenge for regional communities with its Rural Homes for Sale for Locals initiative. Our approach is to attack the cost of housing. That's Paul Major, Foundation President and CEO, speaking at a webinar on the housing initiative this week. Many developers bring housing costs down through tax credits. But, Major notes, those are often competitive and designed for larger projects. That doesn't apply to a small rural community like Norwood. It doesn't need 50 units or 150-unit apartment complex. It needs 15 or 20 homes. So, the foundation is trying to bring costs down through a three-pronged approach. First, they're seeking free land through donations. But, Major notes... It needs to be good free land. So in other words, a vacant parcel of land that's already in a town that already has infrastructure. It has sewer, water, power to the site. It's flat. It's got good soils. All of those things will determine the ultimate cost of the house. Next is low-cost financing to build a construction revolving loan fund. So we've got this pool of money that we can access to build these homes, prepare the site, build the homes, and then replenish the fund when the home gets sold. Finally, the cost of building. The foundation is working with McStain Neighborhoods, a Denver-based home builder, to use factory-built and panelized construction to build efficiently. The foundation is piloting the approach to build homes in four rural communities. About 15 homes in Nucla, 20 homes in Norwood, 12 homes in Ridgeway, and upwards of 60 homes in your way. Local support major stresses is also key in this model. It's got to be the community that says, we want this project. We want to work with McStain and Telluride Foundation and homes to get this project done. It's not that McStain or Paul Major going, pounding on the table saying, we need to have this project. It's got to be the local community. David Bruce is an Enterprise Community Partners Rose Fellow working with the foundation on the housing initiative. In Nucla, he explains, development would be on a roughly two-and-a-half-acre property owned by the West End School District. In Norwood, it would be on a seven-acre plot of land owned by San Miguel County that Bruce says is a terrific spot for this development. With the library close by, just north of the library, there's a town park, and this is about five blocks from Main Street. But density is a challenge. Current zoning, Bruce notes, has each home on a 7,500-square-foot lot. But really, we can almost double the density. So we're going to apply and and gauge the interest of the town to look towards a land use change towards medium density so that we can add more homes on a smaller swath of land. Bruce hopes to release plans for the Norwood housing in August and collect feedback. In Ridgeway, the foundation initially was looking at land owned by the Ridgeway School District, but the district decided not to move forward. But then, Major says, someone in Ridgeway donated the money to buy land for the local housing. We know there's a lot of interest from wealthy people or just regular people in communities that want to try to help solve this problem, because ultimately we're solving it for our neighbors. However, Bruce adds, the Ridgeway site is challenging. For instance, there are no roads on one side. And so it will be quite interesting to see um, how the town of, of Ridgeway partners or, or advises us on how we can actually 
develop this uh, without severe uh, infrastructure costs, you know, which could be upfront just to prep the site ready for homes themselves over a million dollars. Finally, in Urate, the foundation is working with a nine acre plot that still requires work to greenlight for development. The homes, Bruce explains, will be deed restricted. There will be an income cap as well as other requirements. You need to occupy the house full time. It has to be your only home. Um, you know, you couldn't have a second home in, in Moab, for example. You need to work full time. And then there'll be a 3% appreciation on the home value per year. Timelines are a challenge with the uncertainty of development, Bruce notes. But currently, he anticipates starting with the projects in Norwood and Ridgeway with the hope of breaking ground in late 2021 or early 2022. Trillions of dollars are flowing from the federal government to support the national economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. A good chunk of that money is aimed at regional governments, but it takes work to translate that enormous funding into local programs. For San Miguel County, Seamus Croak is helping with that work. Croak is the county's newly hired COVID-19 recovery funding coordinator, helping the county plan how to spend the $1.6 million it has so far received in recovery funding. Speaking at a board of county commissioners meeting this week, Croak says he's trying to understand the needs in the county. Kind of getting a sense of where the need is at to most adequately research funding opportunities to address those needs. He's also looking into the specifics of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan stimulus bill passed earlier this year. What is an eligible expense underneath that legislation and kind of where the county is best positioned to leverage and spend those funds. Croak is focused on three categories for local support, housing, broadband, and behavioral health. On housing, Commissioner Hillary Cooper notes there's no need to reinvent the wheel. We have uh, a lot of groups that are working on affordable housing um, that are fully engaged and that, you know, really understand sort of where uh, our needs are, what projects are most ready to go, uh, what those potential partnerships can be. We definitely do not need to make that up from scratch. And um, I don't want you to have to go down that rabbit hole. That's work that's already being done. Cooper also points to the county's Behavioral Health Solutions Group as another resource to tap. Groke, she says, should focus on revenue loss calculations due to COVID, since that enables more flexible spending if the county can show it. And it helps us support our um, existing programs and needs more long term, uh, as opposed to creating new programs that we would then have to fund into the future. Cooper also thinks Croak should look into additional funding sources for affordable housing. What options are available to us in this region, you know, for the full scale from everything from uh, land acquisition to planning to developing. Ultimately, she stresses the importance of long-term thinking. This is really a one-time opportunity for an investment in our community. And, um, you know, these funds could be gobbled up really fast and then people will come back with their hands out for more or we can really make a difference and invest in our community to build sustainable opportunities. Commissioner Lance Waring agrees. Make the most impact with the money we do get for the longest amount of time and not duplicate or make bad choices. Croak says he is considering how to effectively focus the recovery spending and how to best allocate the funding given other sources that may be available in the future. 
Throwing money at problems may be an early step to solving them, but then comes the challenge of using that money well. Visitors at Woods Lake may have seen signs warning of toxic algae. Eric Gardunio, however, wants to make something clear. Currently, our agency doesn't have any reason to believe there's an ongoing or existing toxic algae bloom happening at Woods Lake. Gardunio is an aquatic biologist for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. The signs, he explains, are meant to be for awareness. Encourage people to look at those signs closely. You know, it does say that toxic algae may be present. You know, I think that's the take-home is that word may. Woods Lake, he says, is a low-risk water body, but he adds toxic algae is also common in waters in Colorado, and blooms can grow rapidly and be serious. It can cause skin irritation, diarrhea, nausea, fever, asthma flare-ups for people, and some similar conditions in pets, and has even been linked to the death of a few dogs uh, in the state in previous years. When it comes to identifying it in the water, toxic algae can make the water look green, turquoise, gold, or red. It oftentimes will look like a thick pea soup or spilled paint on the water's surface. And it's typically made up of small specks or blobs floating just below or right at the water's surface. There's no evidence of toxic algae in Woods Lake, but Gardunio says if CPW finds any, they will put up signs and get the word out. The dogs are barking and the frogs are ribbiting. It's time for the Sheridan Arts Foundation's Young People's Theater Summer Spectacular. This year, YPT will be performing 101 Dalmatians and A Year with Frog and Toad through two one-week drama camps. The annual Summer Spectacular brings together students from grades 3 through 6 for one week of singing, dancing, and acting. Participants show up on Monday having never seen the script, and by Friday, the show is up, full of acting, costumes, sets, and lights. Show number one this year is the Disney classic 101 Dalmatians, which follows a family of Dalmatians, Pongo, Perdita, and their pups as they escape the terrors of Cruella de Vil. Number two is A Year with Frog and Toad, based on Arnold Lobel's books. The play chronicles four seasons with the happy-go-lucky frog and grumpy old toad. The performances of 101 Dalmatians will take place Friday, July 23rd at 1 and 5 p.m., a Year with Frog and Toad will take place Friday, July 30th at 1 and 5 p.m. Performances are free and open to the public and will take place at the Sheridan Opera House. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. A Durango local won one of the legs of the Tour de France earlier this week. The Durango Herald reports 26-year-old Sepp Kuss is only the 11th racer from the U.S. to win one of the bike race's stages in its 108-year history. Kuss finished the 118.9-mile Stage 15 in 5 hours, 12 minutes, and 6 seconds, beating the second-place rider, 2018 world champion Alejandro Valverde of Spain, by 23 seconds. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration issued a La Nina watch last week, which means La Nina could emerge in the fall and last through winter. But is that good news for Colorado? 
KDNK's Amy Haddon Marsh spoke with state climatologist Dr. Russ Schumacher to find out. Rumor has it that Colorado is going to be experiencing a La Nina uh, weather cycle this winter or maybe even starting in September. Can you define La Nina and the difference between that and El Nino? The El Nino, La Nina cycle, or sometimes we we call it ENSO for the El Nino Southern Oscillation, it's basically a a pattern of the ocean temperatures in the Pacific Ocean that flip back and forth over time. And so when it's El Nino, the ocean waters near the coast of South America are especially warm and then cool over in the Western Pacific. And then La Nina is the opposite. So it's cool near South America and warm, you know, near Indonesia and the Philippines and sort of in that area. Why that's important is it, it's one of the biggest factors that influences, for example, where the jet stream will be. And, and it's most prominent in the fall through the winter. So the kind of the, the changes in those ocean temperatures help to determine where the jet stream is going to go over the, the fall and winter and spring. And then that, you know, in some way will, will often affect our weather patterns here in the interior of the United States. So what I'm hearing is that El Nino was present this summer and now suddenly it's shifting to La Nina and we may be getting some wetter weather in the West. So actually this past winter was La Nina conditions through you know April or so and then and then we've we've been back in neutral conditions now for the last you know few months but right the the climate models and the forecasts are pointing towards going back into La Nina starting this fall and so how that is going to affect conditions here this summer the influences of El Nino or La Nina in the summer are not all that strong. Other factors are, are kind of bigger players in the summer, and especially, you know, how the North American monsoon sets up as to whether the precipitation picks up or, or not over the summer. But there's some indication that having a second La Nina back-to-back winters is especially concerning for drought conditions. It hasn't happened that many times historically, but some of those years when we have had this double dip La Nina where it's La Nina and then it kind of goes back to neutral but then returns to La Nina again have been some of the worst drought years. But the influence that El Nino-La Nina cycle has on weather here in Colorado is not super strong. The way it usually plays out is to the north, of, you know, northern tier of states in a La Nina year would be relatively cool and wet. The southern tier of states would be relatively warm and dry. And then we're kind of in the middle and, and it can kind of go either way. But, you know, it, it only determines our weather so much. We were in La Nina this past winter, which many times in the past has been really good for snow in the northern mountains, but that's not what we saw this past winter. How much does global warming or the changing climate, how much of an influence on the La Nina-El Nino cycle does it have? I think that's still a big question that's out there in terms of how the warmer climate is going to affect, you know, whether we end up in, in one of those phases more often 
or less. Generally, when El Nino happens, the entire planet is warmer on average than during La Nina conditions. But as the planet has just continued to warm, now, you know, we see where some of the La Nina years when you would normally expect the global average temperature to be somewhat lower than in other years is still, you know, been very high. So is this uh, prediction of La Nina to begin in the fall, is this good news for Western Colorado or is this wishful thinking because we're so tired of dry, hot, smoky weather? Yeah, I would I would not call it good news, um, you know, especially if we have, you know, the second year of La Nina in a row tends not to be great for drought conditions in our part of the country. But of course, it's pretty far away to be looking at what the fall and winter are going to hold. So in the near term, you know, I think the bigger concern is going to be on what happens with the monsoon this summer. The last three years, the monsoon in western Colorado has been terrible, hot and dry, and most extremely so last year with the fire season. Um, the indications are pointing to our south that the monsoon is, is already starting to ramp up. Arizona and New Mexico have been wet, and they look like they're going to be getting quite a bit of monsoon storms here in the coming week. question is how far north that rainfall creeps, and it's not totally clear how much relief we're going to get from that. But in a normal year, when we get to late July into August, and we should have you know, the periodic thunderstorms and, and some heavy rain in there to, to help, but we haven't had much of that the last three years. Before I say thank you very much, I'm just wondering if you can comment on the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and in Canada. This is unprecedented. Yeah. yeah. In my business, we're used to seeing extremes and, and studying extremes and big fluctuations and, and all those sorts of things. And this, this is kind of so far off the, the scale of the, the kind of thing that, that's ever happened before that is, is pretty remarkable and pretty shocking. Dr. Russ Schumacher, state climatologist here in Colorado. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for isolated showers and thunderstorms tonight with a low around 50. Friday, scattered showers and thunderstorms with a high in the mid-70s. And Friday night, a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms with a low around 50. Saturday, there's a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms with a high near 80 degrees. And Saturday night, partly cloudy with a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms and a low around 50. This has been the news for Thursday, July 15th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. And now, personal commentaries. Hey, it's Mary and Molly at the Telluride Historical Museum. We've got a few events coming up that we're wanting to tell you about. Yes, uh, tomorrow we will be kicking it off at 1 p.m. with the uh, cemetery tour. Uh, Teresa will be leading that. Uh, like I said, it starts at 1 p.m. We'll meet at the Lone Tree Cemetery. The cemetery tour is an amazing way to look a little bit deeper into the lives of the people that lived in Telluride during its early days. They were tough, hardy people, lived very difficult, unimaginable lives. Uh, so this is an amazing way to kind of 
see into our past and learn different histories that you might not otherwise hear about. It's $10 for museum members, $15 for non-members. Uh, we recommend calling the museum ahead of time to purchase tickets. You can call us at 970-728-3344. One more time, that's 970-728-3344. And that, again, is at the Lone Tree Cemetery. We're going to be meeting at the shed right in the middle under the tree. All right, and next Friday, July 23rd at 9 a.m., we are hiking into history up Bear Creek with Rudy Davison. So be prepared to take a little jaunt up the hill. Please come prepared with food, water, and weather-appropriate clothing. Dogs are welcome on this tour, so if you're looking for something to get out and do with your pooch on the morning of Friday the 23rd, 9 a.m., meet us at the Bear Creek Trailhead. Rudy's hike is $10 for members, $20 for non-members, and we'll be meeting at the museum. So again, get that membership. And we've got a quiz question for you today. Yes, and this will pertain to Rudy's hike into history next Friday. Um, the question is, what system, which was patented in 1882, was used to get goods and materials to Nelly Mine in Telluride's early mining days? Hmm. Also, if you're looking for hints, you can go on our social media, Facebook or Instagram, and we've got some clues and or maybe very blatant answers on there. <laughs> but great pictures. You should check us out anyway on social media. We were always posting fun facts and events that are coming up. You won't want to miss some of the awesome things that we post. Yes, blast from the past. Come visit us at the museum. We'd love to see you. Uh, free for locals on Thursdays, and we are open till 7 on Thursdays. Uh, so come check us out then or any day between Mondays and Saturdays. All right, Telluride, have a good evening. Hey, Coda listeners. I know that a lot of Coloradans tend to work hard and play hard. And when you play hard, sometimes accidents happen. If you get hurt, don't get caught without health insurance. Take advantage of open enrollment in Connect for Health Colorado's health insurance marketplace. You can enroll in coverage until Sunday, August 15th, and Tri-County Health's health coverage guides make it even easier to sign up. We can even answer your questions or walk you through the process. Call 970-708-7096 or email us at info at tchnetwork.org to make an appointment during business hours Monday through Friday. Give us a call or shoot us an email and get covered today. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.